Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and here now is my considered view of the Masters. Come on, baby! Yeah! That's what's known as production in the trade. Uh, one more time, I think. Come on, baby! Yeah! The words there of Judge Trump, of course. Uh, he uh, certainly enjoyed himself, and, uh, well, no one enjoyed themselves more than Neil Robertson. Congratulations to him on what was a fantastic victory. And the week as a whole was just terrific. I thought it was a great advert for snooker. Genuinely uh, just wonderful. We saw some great matches, which obviously is important. The final wasn't terrific. It was a bit of a, obviously, one-sided. The MP did out a bit. But there's been classic Masters finals that have followed pretty average tournaments over the years. You know, it's not always about the final, actually. It was about the good feeling, I think, all week. Uh, great tournament, great venue. World Snooker Tour did a fantastic job promoting it. Uh, the crowds, of course, turned out in huge numbers. I wasn't sure. Obviously, with COVID in London, you know, where the people would go, they did. They supported it, and it came across so well on television. It was a perfect advert for the game, and Neil Robertson is a great champion. Um, I, I suppose I can advertise my own column on my own podcast. I wrote a column this week on the Eurosport website uh, about Neil Robertson and his sort of journey, and, you know, it's a great story, and, and to see him there with his family was, was wonderful, actually, at the end. These, these two children and his wife... Just a brilliant end to a brilliant week. Now, uh, last week, uh, I, I, <laughs> it was, uh, people have used the word fiasco, it's a little unkind, but it was a short podcast because we had no emails. Well, people have responded, the good people of uh, Snookerland have responded, and uh, a bulging mailbag. In fact, the, lo- the postman has actually got a hernia uh, lugging them up the drive, which of course makes no sense because they're emails. But anyway, uh, we've had a lot of emails, so I'm going to go through as many as I can, and uh, obviously a lot of them are to do with the Masters. And what do we say about the Masters? Come on, baby! That's what we say about the Masters. Anyway, uh, enough of that. I think that's going to get tiresome pretty soon. Right. uh, So what I'm going to do uh, initially, there's quite a few on a similar sort of subjects. I'm going to just read out a few. I'm not going to comment on everything that's said, but I'm going to sort of generally comment. So Callum Law, uh, first of all, he said, I enjoyed the Masters over the last week, but I thought there were good and bad points to come out of it. 
Firstly, the good. There were some epic matches. Trump v. Allen, Robertson v. Sullivan, Higgins v. Williams, and both semi-finals, to name a few. I felt a bit sorry for Barry Hawkins in the final, because he didn't play to the levels we know he's capable of. But when Neil Robertson plays well, he's such a terrific player to watch, and he was a worthy winner. However, a lot was made of the great atmosphere at Alexandra Palace, and while there were occasions when it was very good, I thought over the week the behaviour of the crowd was quite poor. There was a lot of nonsensical shouting out for no reason, which was more akin to darts or boxing. I felt before the Masters maybe attracts a slightly different crowd to other tournaments, which maybe contributes to some of the stuff that went on. As a BBC viewer, I felt aspects of their coverage were lamentable, but having watched both the Masters on the BBC, uh, and the UK on the BBC, it only further cemented my opinion that John Virgo and Dennis Taylor are the best two commentators they have, yet they're still on their way out. I know nothing lasts forever, but it's disappointing. Dennis's absence at the Masters was noticeable, because in my opinion, the warmth and enthusiasm he brings to commentary is unmatched. I noted, noted in your excellent Christmas special with the Talking Snooker guys that when you started commentating, you received advice about always sounding like you were enjoying whatever you were covering. Well, when I watch Snooker and Dennis Taylor is commentating, I always think he sounds like he's having the most enjoyable time of anybody there, which enhances my viewing experience. Both he and John Virgo will be big losses when the time with the BBC is up. Apologies for the lengthy email. Keep up the great podcasts. They're always an enjoyable listen. Uh, nothing wrong with the length of the email, Callum. We'll, well at least have any. Never mind, <laughs> mind how long they are. James Howard on similar subjects. Whilst watching and enjoying the Masters and the crowd's enthusiasm, I'm slightly concerned the way the crowds are going. Whilst I'm in no way suggesting that the enthusiasm of the crowds has not been anything but amazing at the Masters, I'm seeing more and more people in the crowd calling out mid-shot or when someone's at the table. I'm currently watching Hawkins Trump, and whilst Barry's at the table, at a crucial point, some lemon has called out, come on, Judd lad, to which there was barely a mention on commentary and nothing from the ref. I've noticed it in other matches too, especially the O'Sullivan match when there was all sorts called out and the bias towards him was making me want to vomit. Like I say, I'm all for the loud crowds and the atmosphere it provides, but to be making any noise at all whilst a player is at the table is a big no-no for me and I'm just a little concerned that we're heading slightly towards a more shootout dance atmosphere. Love to know your thoughts. David Burney from Canada, he writes, The crowds were fantastic and the referees did a great job at setting them all down. Uh, looked like everyone was happy to get out and enjoy the great action. Strong work to Deshishlava, who worked her first major final. Very proud of her. Yan did a great job at controlling the crowds. Rob made dinner of those flyers. Of course, we're talking there about the referees, Deshishlava, Bustleova, Yan Vahas and Rob Spencer. David continues on the note of flyers about the darts. Perhaps the darts should be after the snooker at the Ali Pali, and there's maybe some of the darts crowd left over some snacks for the flyers. Uh, I think I read that wrongly, but anyway, we'll continue. Really nice to to a table... Really nice to a table fitting at work when the pocket had some trouble on the Hawkins-Trump match. Unfortunately, DAZN in Canada got the BBC feed, but I'm sure your commentary was simply divine and full of great insight. Well, I don't know about that, but anyway. On the game action, simply wonderful. Pretty much every match was an nail-biter, especially Robertson-Williams. As you could have a full podcast episode on that match. Good to show the young snooker players to never quit. Big congratulations to Neil Robertson, a stand-up player and gentleman, on his Masters victory. Well-deserved title for him. Maybe not as much as a nail-biter as the other matches, but still a good victory. Snooker looks to be in a great place, he, he concludes. Uh, and finally, for now, Stephen Forbes writes, Mark Williams commented that the standing ovation he and John Higgins received at the start of their Masters quarter-final, and indeed the overall atmosphere, was the best he's ever played in. John was also very complimentary. Recency bias is often difficult to discount with such questions, but where did the atmosphere rank for you, considering the time you've been in and around snooker? Atmosphere aside, it was a fantastic and engrossing encounter, and as the years pass, we can only cherish every match between such legends of snooker. It's a privilege to have lived through their snooker-playing lives, and long may it continue. 
So thank you for those. And obviously a lot talking about the atmosphere, the crowd at Alexandra Palace. On the latter point from Stephen Forbes there, I thought the Williams-Higgins uh, match, everything about that was wonderful. Um, and it was, was because of who it was. You know, those two... I mean, all the time I've been covering snooker, they've been top players, you know. And we've seen so much from them. They've given so much. They've entertained us. Um, and it was wonderful. Um, and you saw it from both of them. This was the theme of the week, OK? We spend a lot of time at snooker tournaments, often, kind of navel-gazing about perceived problems in the game. And it happened at the UK Championship. We spent all that time, you know, talking about the amateurs and all that stuff. And it's happened at the World Championship before. There was none of that this week. Everybody there, everybody there, in, from a playing perspective and behind the scenes, just thought it was a terrific week of snooker. You saw players beaten who didn't seem that disappointed because they'd gone through... A great experience. We saw that from Higgins. Um, I do think some of it is maybe recency bias, you say, but also obviously the behind closed doors thing, the lockdown snooker they played was so soulless, you know, everyone was happy to be there and all the rest of it, but there was no atmosphere at all. It was just dead. You'd win a tournament and there'd be nothing happening, you know, no crowd to salute, nothing. So to suddenly have all this again, uh, it was special, I think. And it felt more special because these two are involved because they are legends of the game. I do have to say one thing, though, without trying to um, in any way do it down. It wasn't entirely spontaneous. Rob Walker, the MC, does a fantastic job, a fantastic job of in, uh, in, uh, introducing the players, but also warming the crowd up beforehand, making them feel like they're part of a special event. And he did suggest to them that they, you know, they, have a, they stand up for the players. So it wasn't entirely spontaneous. But that that doesn't actually matter because it came across so well on television and that certainly when they got up before the decider, that was spontaneous. Um, that was the crowd on their own volition deciding to cheer these two. So on, on the broader point of crowds, I, absolutely, I actually completely disagree with the criticism of the crowds. C completely disagree. Because I remember the Masters at the Wembley Conference Centre and it was far worse, far worse than we saw last week. I thought last week was mainly good-natured. There were a few times, yes, when people shouted out at the wrong time, but they they were shushed, you know. It's a great, it's another great British sport, shushing and sort of tutting and shaking your head, and they were kind of shamed into shutting up. And it's amazing, actually, if you look back, how quiet it was for most of the time. Yes, people got involved at times. Well, OK, fine, they paid their money, they're enjoying themselves. I don't get this. There's so many people, particularly online, who, if there's a flat atmosphere at the snooker, say the tournaments, some of the ones we've had in China in the past, there's very few people there... They're soon complaining about that. Oh, it looks terrible. There's no one there. There's an atmosphere. Now people are complaining that there was an atmosphere. I don't get that at all. I like to see people enjoying themselves, particularly at the snooker. It was snooker that brought them out. It was snooker that got them excited. Okay, a few people went over the top, but they were dealt with. It wasn't a big deal. And not one player complained about the crowd. Not one. I was at Wembley years ago. We're going back 20 odd years here. And I better not say who it was, but it's a very well known player. Was beaten. It was a Friday night. The crowd, sections of the crowd were absolutely vile. They were drunk. They were shouting offensive things. And he threatened never to play in the tournament again. He went into Jim Elkins' office. Jim, ran, Jim Elkins ran the Masters because uh, it was independent then of World Snooker. It was a private thing. And he said, if you don't sort this out, I'm never playing here again. It was, it was nasty. We saw it at Wembley Arena, that final between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Ding Junhui. Ding was in tears, some of the things that were shouted out. Some of them were basically racist, OK? That was nasty. This wasn't nasty. It was over the top at times, yes, but it was basically good-natured, and I was delighted to see an atmosphere at the snooker. Now, I'm not saying, you know, it's a sport where we want everyone to get drunk and, and be unruly, but it wasn't that, I don't think. I don't think it was that. I think it was on the right side of acceptable 
and you know like i say i like to see people enjoying themselves there's always been something about london and the masters that has sort of brought out sort of rowdier crowds than than you normally get but the players like that the players like it to feel important they like it to feel as if people are getting involved and also it came across well on the tv you know it's become kind of a big event almost must have ticket a bit like the dance um so listen i respect all opinions about this i know some people don't like it but i didn't see anything wrong with it personally now we're going to move on to some specific questions about the Masters. Daniel Farthing, he said, I love the podcast, it keeps me entertained while driving to and fro from for work. Quick question, I visited Ali Pali on Sunday. To my disappointment, there was no viewing area for the practice table. On previous visits, there was a window in the marquee bar area. Any idea why? I'll be honest, Daniel, I've got no idea, but many, obviously, things have changed, protocols have changed because of COVID. It may have been something to do with that. I don't know that for sure because, you know, you look round. There wasn't a huge amount of mask wearing really going on, so I don't know. But, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose it could be the case that not all the players actually want people watching them practice. You know, it is a kind of private area, uh, maybe. So maybe that's it. But, um, yes, uh, I know that's not very helpful, but uh, that, they will be my two guesses. It's either COVID or maybe just the players don't like it. Uh, Alpha Bonzi, three quick questions in the wake of the Neil Robertson second Masters win. One, let's just go through these very quickly. One, is Barry Hawkins the best player not to win a Triple Crown event? Uh, well, he's, uh, of course, he's been in two Masters finals now and a World Final. Um, you look at Karen Wilson, another current player, he's been in a World Final and a Masters Final. So at the moment, top 16 players, they would, I guess, be the two candidates for that. Um, yeah, you take your pick. I mean, Barry has been in three finals, Karen's been in one. Uh, so... I'm not sure it's that, that that's a that's a sort of badgy the one that really wants to wear though. So um, I'm sure you know. I mean, I, I suppose the, the, maybe I'll turn it round. Which of those two would be most likely to win one of those three tournaments? I would say personally, Kyron would probably be would get my vote there. Um, time will tell. Number two, despite the usual drunks thinking they were watching the darts, best best atmosphere ever. Now, of course, this reminds me I didn't actually answer the question <laughs> from our previous correspondent whether whether this was. The best atmosphere I'd uh, found at the snooker. <sighs> it's hard to say straight afterwards. It, 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 it would be up there. I think people forget a little bit, though, about some of the other things we've seen. I mean, the Temperdrome in Berlin is a wonderful atmosphere when it's one table and it's packed there. And and people who don't like some of the rowdier elements would like it there because it doesn't get like that. Uh, when Mark Williams won it the first time, the first time it was staged in 2011, the invasion he got at the end of the final, he beat... Uh, I think it was Mark Selby, 9-7, so it's close. And they were just on their feet for, for a long, long time, like long-standing ovation. Went on for minutes and minutes, and Mark was quite moved, and that doesn't always happen to him. So, you know, it's been good there. It was, you know, despite what I said about Wembley earlier, you could get, you know, some really sort of thrilling nights there. Um, but, yeah, it was up there for sure. And I think the, the I think the setup is really good at Ali Pali. It looks good. It looks modern. And we'll maybe come on to that a little bit later on. Um, Alpha's last question some players have rightly said there aren't enough events like the Masters time to revive another top class invitational maybe the Premier League yes um, I think there's a question on this later but uh, I'm all for different events they can't all be elite events obviously because there's 128 players uh, on the tour but it would be good to see for example the Irish Masters is one I think everyone would love to see come back Scottish Masters, or, or, or these sort of events elsewhere in the world. I mean, Shanghai is a big event uh, when it when it uh, returns. That's a huge invitation event. There's a lot to be said for 
using elite events to showcase the game on a wider level. But they can't all be that because you know the the, the other players obviously you know deserve uh, their own tournaments. Now then, uh, snooker fan royalty has written in Kelly Barker, long time snooker fan, very passionate snooker fan. Kelly writes, what a great Masters it was. I just caught up with your short episode last week and felt I should finally email in. <laughs> a lot of people, I think, <laughs> have taken pity on me for last week. I was just telling the truth. We had, we had three emails and that was it. But uh, anyway, everyone's made up for it this week. Kelly continues, I spent three great days at Alexandra Palace and it was one of my favourite years of the Masters. What, what World Snooker Tour has done with the event deserves real credit and it's extra enjoyable now whether you're watching at home or at the venue. My main reason for emailing in, though, is... Judd Trump gets so much stick on Twitter for winning small events, and she put small in inverted commas. I think that's rubbish. Some don't class him as an all-time great yet. Meanwhile, Neil Robertson gets all the praise despite a similar record, three more triple crowns, but he's quite a few years older. Is it just that people are jealous of Judd's success over the last few years and need something to pick on? For me, we should just feel lucky to have both of them at the top of the game, and I expect both to finish on more than one world title by the time they retire. Keep up the good work, Dave. I always enjoy listening. Thank you, Kelly. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you do listen. Come on, baby! Yeah! That's Judd uh, giving his opinion. Um, yeah, well, people on Twitter. I mean, you know, the, the problem with that medium is it, it kind of it lends itself to you know just slagging people off, really, doesn't it? And um, I, I I think Judd isn't a great player, uh, and I think Neil Robertson's a great player, and there's not much to choose between the two of them when you see them play. In terms of their career records, uh, you know, obviously they've they've both won the Triple Crown. Uh, Judd has won, I think, uh, is it two more ranking events in total? So they're very kind of even, really. They've 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 both done everything essentially that you that you need to do. The way you become an absolute legend of the game, maybe in the pantheon of all time greats, is to win them multiple times. So the sort of six players in the last 40 years, if we, if we go from the start of the 80s when the professional circuit really started to thrive to now, the six players who belong, for me, in that pantheon, Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mark Williams and Mark Selby, because they're all multiple world champions, uh, which is the crucial thing, and they're also all multiple winners of other tournaments as well. Uh, where you want to put them on your individual list is up to you. But those six, I think, in the last 40 years are the ones that really stand above everyone else. Neil Robertson and Judd Trump are not far off that. They need to win more world titles, I guess, because that is our biggest event. There's no getting away from that. The World Championship is our biggest event. Now, I, I tend to agree with you, Kelly. I think that, you know, you could definitely... I mean, they're definitely good enough to go there and win it again. But, for example, this year, say one of them does win it, it means one of them won't. This is what I always say. There's only one chance a year... And there's so many good players, more probably than there's ever been. So, you know, it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. Um, I think there is a certain jealousy towards Judd, yeah, because people see him as he, he's a young lad who's doing really well. And, not, <laughs> you know, plot spoiler, not everyone likes that. Uh, <laughs> not everyone likes to see that. Steve Davis had it. Oh, why is he always winning? Stephen Hendry, I was sick of that. You know, Ronnie, you know, is very popular, but also a lot of people who give him stick. Mark Selby, we've seen, you know, get a lot of stick as well. It tends to be people winning <laughs> who get all the stick. So he should take it really as a compliment. Um, all this business about small events, big events, he's won a lot of big events. You know, people forget, for example, a lot of the tournaments in China, um, you know, the International Championship World Open, these are big money tournaments. You know, they're prestigious tournaments. They don't have the history, of course, of um, some of the older tournaments. That's just a, a sort of, you know, a fact. But 
the big tournaments. He won the champion of champions, and he has won. You know, people bang on about the triple crown. He's won all three. He's he's won. He's completed that set. It's only eleven players who've done that. So he is in very very elite company. You know, been world number one. I think he's done great, um, and I think Neil's done great, and I'm sure the two of them will continue to do great for several years uh, still to come. But uh, I've got full respect for both of them, and I, I don't really. I don't really like the sort of tribal element in snooker. It's, it's, it's not a team sport. You know, these are all human beings and they entertain us. And I think that should be enough. Obviously, people have their favourites and their less favourites. But uh, I think you have to respect their achievements. Um, I know I, I'm like a stuck record, but this Triple Crown thing, you know, it's kind of distorted, actually, the the level of achievement, the, the record of achievement of certain players. I mean, there was an extraordinary thing I saw on both the BBC and the World Snooker website claiming that Ray Reardon had won seven Triple Crown events. I mean, it's just nonsense because, if, if okay, if you're going to say it's a thing, right, it cannot start until those three tournaments are all established, right, which was 1977. Okay, obviously the World Championship was long established. The Masters didn't start until 75. The UK didn't start until 1977. So how can the 1970 World Championship be a Triple Crown event? There was no, there was no, literally no such thing because there was only one tournament then. And if you're going to count Ray Reardon's all his world titles, you've got to count Joe Davis's, haven't you? So Joe Davis has won 15 Triple Crown events. You know, the th it's become a little bit, well, not a little bit. It's become totally ridiculous, actually, um, and it is distorting the level of achievement on the rest of the circuit. And we'll come on later to talking about actually the rest of the circuit and how that can be given an uplift to bring it into line with some of these so-called majors. In fact, why don't we look at that now? Because I've had two interesting questions on the venues. Kerry Richards. A question around tournament venues across the UK. Here's a list for this season, which doesn't include the Championship League qualifiers. Okay, so he listed the uh, the venues that are being used. So two events in Leicester, two in Clandidno. Belfast, Milton Keynes, Bolton, York, Coventry, London, Wolverhampton, Newport, Sheffield. I appreciate the choice of venues is dependent on size, suitability and availability, especially during these times. I also appreciate that some of the above may be one-offs, with the list being different for next season. However, working from this year's list, it seems that certain parts of the UK are better catered for than others, particularly the Midlands, Leicester, Coventry, Wolverhampton and Yorkshire, Sheffield and York. Do you know of any obvious reason why the North East, Newcastle, or the South, Southwest, Southampton or Plymouth, have no tournaments? Also... Why big cities such as Birmingham, Manchester and Leeds don't get any? I guess there's no direct correlation necessarily, but you'd assume such cities would have bigger venues, as well as chimney pots to attract crowds and sell tickets. I'd also add Dublin to this category, looking slightly outside the UK. One to talk through, hopefully. I've not mentioned Scotland for obvious reasons. And Marty, I'm going to say Marty, it's either McGreed or McGrade. Either way, I'll have got it right and wrong there, Marty. Thanks for writing in. He writes, uh, I've been listening to your podcast for years. This is the first time I felt inclined to email as something struck me during the Masters. I, like you, feel the world champs should never leave the Crucible. But the thought occurred to me during the Masters semi-finals, would it be that bad if the Masters and the World Championships switched venues? The more I thought about it, the more it made sense. The Crucible is really a one-table venue, and Ali Pali could easily accommodate two tables. With the Worlds being a two-week tournament with three sessions most days, World Snooker Talk will clean up with ticket sales as the Ali Pali is now an established snooker venue in a vastly populated city. The Crucible will continue to host a world-class snooker event with great prestige behind it. I'm still reluctant to support the world leaving the Crucible because of the history of the event, but perhaps for the long-term health of the game, this will be a better move. Maybe even alternate year on year so the worlds will not leave the Crucible completely if there's any chance the venues would agree to this. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the matter. I love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Marty. Well, on the, yeah, there's, so there's a number of points here. 
but they sort of link into the same thing. I think this is the key thing for me now. What we've seen last week, and okay, the Masters starts with an advantage of being a historic tournament with all you know all the memories we have. But what we saw last week is if you put snooker in a really good venue in a big city, you know, and promote it properly and make it look like a modern sporting event, people will come. Obviously, the Masters also has the, just the top 16, so the standard was always likely to be, you know, sort of r- routinely, consistently good and high, which it was. Um, but this is what we need to do now. We need to find better venues. We go to too many of these sort of leisure centres and places that don't really inspire anybody. Ronnie O'Sullivan, uh, unusually for Ronnie, <laughs> created some controversy a couple of years ago. Uh, the English Open was held in Crawley at a leisure centre, and he said all sorts of things about it including that the best thing about Crawley was the road out of it. It's not the fault of the town. It's not the fault of the venue. It's the fault, actually, of World Snooker for going there. I thought what Ronnie said was absolutely right. If you strip out the sort of the more sort of over-the-top things, I thought what he said was right, and here's why. The tournament, it was the English Open, it was just another thing happening in the building. They had the kids' swimming lessons, they had the squash, they had the, the elderly people playing bowls, and the snooker was just another thing. It, it didn't scream elite sport, it didn't scream special... It was just something happening in another room in the building. And we see this a lot. You know, the players walk in. and Some big stars here, you know, some legends of the sport. Walking in, you know, through the public area. There's people, you know, getting ready for swimming and the gym and everything. And it just, it is not, it doesn't scream elite level sport. We need to find better venues. And that means, of course, (laughs) paying more money. But you can, it's a trade-off. Because if you pay more money for a better venue, okay, it's more to hire it. But hopefully you will sell more tickets. You can charge more, perhaps in cities, than you can in in smaller towns. There's more infrastructure around it. There's restaurants and bars. We see this in Sheffield. You know, the the crucible's in the heart of Sheffield city centre. The whole economy benefits, you know, two and a half, three million pounds a year in in normal times when the crucible is, is on because it's nearly three weeks and the whole city benefits. So to me, I agree with what you're saying. The geographical spread is a, is a, an issue as well. I agree that there's probably too many tournaments in the, in a locally sort of clustered area. There are challenges at the moment getting venues in, in the current times. You know, some of them literally were closed sort of for big, like COVID hospitals in effect or even vaccination centres. It's not easy, but I think definitely the ambition must be, and this is the point I was making a moment ago, World Snooker Tour have nailed the big three. The, the World Championship, the Masters and the UK, they're in good venues, they're well promoted, they sell out pretty much all the way through. That should be the aspiration now for the other tournaments. The other tournaments need to be built up. It's not all about the Triple Crown. It's not all about the BBC events. There's a whole circuit out there. We often hear, oh, it's great these days. There's 20 on tournaments. It is great, but they all need to be built up. Uh, you look at the Kazoo Series. There's three terrific events there. Uh, World Grand Prix, Players' Championship, Tour Championship, and lots of other events as well. Try and find better venues in bigger places, Leeds, Liverpool, Birmingham, Manchester, you know, and the big cities in Wales, in Scotland, and elsewhere as well. Dublin was mentioned. Try and find, you know, better venues. And it's not easy because a lot of them, <laughs> the thing about with really good venues is a lot of them are booked up for years with other things. So it's not easy. I'm not saying it is, but that should be the aspiration. We shouldn't just settle for putting the so-called smaller tournaments in venues that don't inspire, you know, much... Uh, well, much at all. Now, in terms of Marty's question about swapping the world and the Masters, I have to say I wouldn't be in favour for the very simple reason that they both work where they are for me. The Crucible is the Crucible. The, the Alley Pally has become the home of the Masters. And I'm not sure necessarily the advantage of changing it. We had, as we always do, 
I mean, Alfie Burden was one of the people who sort of suggested this. Why not have the World Championship at the Alexandra Palace? And I was pleased to hear Ronnie uh, come to the defence of the Crucible on Eurosport because it was put to Ronnie and Jimmy. And Jimmy said he could understand. He said it might be a good move if we no were no longer at the Crucible. He wasn't advocating leaving there, but he said if that comes to an end, this will be a good venue. But Ronnie was quite clear. He said actually, this is great for the Masters and Sheffield is special for the World Championship, which is kind of my view. Having said that. There is a slight drumbeat now, actually, that I'm sort of hearing about the Crucible. Obviously, Judd Trump last year kind of said we may have outgrown it. And I, one thing at, at the Alley Pally, Will Snooker had all these hospitality areas, which can be uh, quite financially beneficial to them because they can charge a lot for them. And I've heard now two different people from World Snooker basically saying we, we need that at the Crucible and there isn't room. We need it at the World Championship and there isn't room at the Crucible. Which suggests to me that, you know, that, that could be one of the sort of arguments, uh, if, if it ever leaves the crucible, why it go. Now, personally, I understand that. It brings in money. Personally, I couldn't care less about hospitality. I couldn't care less about, it's always sort of businesses in, in a set, in a, usually buy them. They come on a works jolly, you know, they drink the wine, they sort of half watch the snooker. They're not the sort of snooker fans that buy the normal tickets in the main, in the main. Um, but it is part of modern sport, and it's what you would expect of a world championship on a, in a major TV sport like snooker. And at the Crucible, they can't do it properly. Um, and there's another thing about the Crucible while we're on it that's a sort of per I can see a sort of perfect storm brewing, um, which could, in the end, and, and maybe not that far in the future, see the Crucible's days potentially numbered. And, I, and this is all supposition. This is not based on anything other than what I'm sort of seeing happening. It's there till 2027. Uh, now, it's just been announced the British government are going to essentially take the licence fee away from the BBC in 2027, so that their funding model will change. They'll have less money. If they've got less money, they, they'll have less money to spend on things like sports rights, so there's no guarantee that their snooker contract will be renewed. Barry Hearn, by that point, will be in his late 70s, probably not hands-on anymore at World Snooker, and, of course, he has said he doesn't want it to leave the Crucible. So all these things coming together... The BBC, you know, as long as they're involved, want it at the Crucible. As long as Barry's involved, he wants it at the Crucible. But if they're not involved and there is this sort of push to monetize and, you know, go to a bigger venue, then that could be the end of it. I don't know that for sure. And I kind of hope it isn't. Ha having said that, again, I was talking to someone last week who's in his 20s and he was kind of making the point that, and, and he was doing it gently, but he, but he, I thought about it and he was right. He was kind of saying, a lot of people who defend the Crucible are thinking about Snooker's past rather than about Snooker's future. Um, and it's kind of hard to hear that because it's true. <laughs> really, we are wrapped up in the history of it. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I'd love it to stay there. I'd love it to stay there. If it left, it wouldn't be the same. It would be, it would feel like a different event. Time would tell whether it would be, be, would be better or worse, you know? It might be, I mean, we saw the vibrancy of the Ali Pali. In time, we might think, actually, this is a good move, but... I know it would disappoint a lot of snooker fans, but to, to answer your basic question, I think keep them where they are because they kind of work where they are. Uh, Scott Fife writes, Seeing Paul Hunter's father, Alan, attending the Masters prompted me to write. When I was a sports writer, I interviewed Paul after his first ranking title win at the Welsh Open in 1998. Having used snooker scene to put together a full record of his career results in advance of talking to him, I was amazed at how many of them he could recall the score of back to his qualifying days without hesitation. What's your experience with the players looking back at past routine matches? Is it the majority who have these powers of recall? Thank you, Scott. I would say, 
it's either one or the other. They either do or they don't. And if they don't, they a lot of them remember very little. Particularly the older players, I suppose they've played more matches. I mean, when Paul won that Welsh Open, he was 19. Uh, and by the way, uh, just to say, the the, uh, the ovation Alan got was wonderful. I mean, that was genuine and it was spontaneous. The cam went on him. I think John Virgo was commentating. commentating and uh, mentioned him and, and people stood up and applauded. It was a wonderful moment. Of course, they've named the, the trophy after after Paul Hunter. Um, I'd interviewed Neil Robertson on the podcast a few years ago and his recall, he can not only remember results, he can remember shots he played in matches. He's just got that brain, very analytical, forensic, almost photographic. And uh, so he would be one of the best. Um, what I find is players often remember sort of odd incidents in matches, so they might not remember even the scoreline in the match, but they'll remember if the referee didn't put the black on its spot properly <laughs> or something like that. Um, everyone's different, aren't they? I think uh, you know, different players have different mind, sort of mindsets and ways they work. Some like to sort of switch off. But, uh, yeah, for snooker players in general, I think their recall is, is pretty good. And as I say, Neil Robertson, if you listen back to that interview, probably the best I've heard. Uh, making good progress here. I'd say another another two hours we should be done. <laughs> Kevin Newey writes, Long-time listener, first-time writer. I've been playing on the local snooker scene in Coventry for approximately 30 years, from when I was 13 to 14 years old. The local league has gone from six divisions, each with 20 teams, to three divisions of nine. Covid put pay to a few teams, but the lack of social clubs and venues is having a detrimental effect on the amount of people who can watch and play the game. The level of local snooker has deteriorated to the point where we only have a small handful of players left who could regularly knock in a century break. Over the years, Mick Price, Mark Selby, Lee Griffin, Ben Wollaston and Chris Wakelin have all graced our local league, but now it's a sorry state and only going one way. Apart from the venue issue, the other big problem is that there's a lack of young players taking up the game. We really need snooker clubs to grab the bull by the horns and start up their own academies. These will be their future customers. If nothing happens, the average member age will continue to increase and more venues will close until it's almost impossible to play the game. It might not be in the next 10 years, but fast forward 20, 30, 40, and we may be there. It would be good to hear more about what the WPBSA is doing specifically in the UK to drum up enthusiasm for the game. Finally, I wanted to send congratulations to Ian Wagstaff, who was one of the officials at the recent World Seniors event. He's played in the Coventry League for over 50 years and picked up the gloves about 10 years ago. It looks like a bit of a closed shop for officiating the big matches, but will be good to see some different faces. He was also a top local player and has made over 2,000 centuries in practice. Are there any other referees who could give him a run for his money on the base? Uh, quite a few of them play. I know Brendan has played, uh, League Snooker, Paul Collier. Um, there was a referee years ago, uh, Bob Chandler, who made a maximum, actually. Uh, he, was a, he was a terrific player. Um, they don't all play. A lot of them play pool, but they're all kind of... Uh, yeah, I think they've all played it in, in, in some to some level. Um, but on your substantive point about, yeah, I mean, this is a familiar story, I'm afraid. And um, there are definitely initiatives. The WPBSA do have initiatives to try and drive interest. But there's one very clear problem, and that is there are fewer snooker clubs in Britain. We are talking, I'm afraid, about Britain pretty exclusively here. Apologies to listeners elsewhere in the world, but this is a question from someone in Coventry. Uh, there are fewer snooker clubs now than there were 20 odd years ago. Uh, the various things have happened. Um, you know, rents and rates is one thing. The smoking ban, when that came in, sort of did slightly cut the sort of, uh, the sort of social link between, you know, snooker and, and people sort of going out. You know, it used to be you'd go and see your friends and you wouldn't necessarily play snooker in the club, but now maybe those people stopped going and they stopped taking their sons and daughters as well. So, 
fewer youngsters, society's changed, there's more things to do, smartphones, all that. We know what the, we know what the issues are. There was, a, there was a piece that I saw on the BBC iPlayer that was played out, I think, in the interval on Sunday afternoon on the BBC Masters coverage. Steve Davis went to some of the old haunts in London, Romford, um, Snooker Club and other places, and looked at the sort of state of the game in the UK. Now, listen, I would watch Steve... I'd, I'd happily watch an hour of Steve going around snooker clubs talking to people, and he, he spoke to some youngsters who were very enthusiastic. But it was a slightly, it was a slightly one-sided uh, view of the, the situation, and it surprised me actually. Bearing in mind the PPC's absolute obsession with balance in their news coverage, to the extent where I think you know you often see, you know, uh, two sort of two opinions presented equally when actually one is one is actually right and one isn't, or one is factual and one isn't. It's the old thing about journalism. If one person says it's raining and one person says it isn't, your job is not to quote both of them, it's to look out the window. Anyway, we won't get into all that now. But uh, I, I was very surprised that in the studio discussion afterwards, there was no sort of hard questions put to him or even just the other side put about the way it sort of declined. It was the, You got the impression that snooker was really on the up in Britain and really thriving. I'm not sure that's quite true, is it? Because a lot of people just don't have places to play. That's the problem. Um, so, yeah, it's an issue that, uh, you know, it, it's, it, there's no magic wand to solve it. And World Snooker Tour, it's not their job to solve it. They promote the professional circuit. Um, the WPSA, as I say, do have initiatives and there are junior events, and but there's just not as many people playing. And that's just, you know, that's just a fact. So um, it's sad, but, uh, you know... It, Society changes and people's interests change and the way they spend their leisure time changes. Uh, there are still, you know, some really good juniors in Britain and I'm sure they'll come through. But uh, then again, I guess the counter argument is it's not all about Britain, is it? There's other places in the piece that Steve did, which, by the way, was very well put together. I mean, IMG, who, who, uh, who do the coverage, really do those pieces well. They pointed out, you know, the, the amount of people playing, for example, in China... And obviously, you know, it, it's growing in, in various other parts of the world as well. But not every country has has the infrastructure um, that, that, that we've traditionally had in Britain. But another question from Stephen Forbes. He says, this may be difficult for you to answer due, due to the ongoing discussions and your occasional working relationship with the player. But if you can comment, what's your personal view regarding Peter Lyons' recent punishment for his behaviour towards Yao Gudong in a qualifier in 2021? I appreciate some listeners may need the context of this question before you answer. Well, this was the Northern Ireland Open qualifying last season. Peter Lyons lost to Zhao Gudong. Afterwards, he confronted him. He was unhappy with a, a situation in one of the frames where the referee replaced the balls. He felt they'd been replaced incorrectly and got very aggressive towards Zhao Gudong and basically kind of threatened him. Um, and it was witnessed by World Snooker Tour staff. There was a hearing last week. He was fined £2,500 and 5500 costs. My feeling is it was quite a heavy punishment. Um, you know, that's eight thousand pounds in in total. Um, but my feeling also was he was clearly in the wrong. I mean, he apologised in advance. I'm sure he felt bad about it. The strange thing about it was the frame that he he had the problem with. He actually won in the end. Um, and also in that in that situation with the miss, the referee says to the two players, he asked he or she asked them, "Are you happy with where the balls are?" So that's the time to speak up, not two hours later when you've been beaten. Peter was in the wrong, he knows that. Um I I've worked with him, I like Peter a lot. He's you know, he's a pure snooker man, loves the game, you know, he's well known character at the Northern Snooker Centre. But he would accept himself in on this occasion he was in the wrong 
and he would just have to swallow the punishment. Um, there is a wider question as to whether he should remain on the WPVC board, because after all, those board members, I mean, that's for the players, and they are there, in effect, to govern the players. Is it appropriate to have someone who's been fined in this way as a board member? He's not resigned yet, uh, and they can't just throw him off. It would be up to the players to get together and, I guess, requisition an EGM. My sense is they probably can't be bothered to do that. They've got more important things to worry about. Um, I feel so- sorry about this because Peter is gen- generally speaking, you know, a good guy. Obviously, that day he lost his rag, uh, but you, you can't do that to another player. You can't go threatening them and shouting at them. It's not right, and it's appropriate that he was punished. And sadly, you know, he's just going to have to accept that, and, and, and we're all going to have to move on from it. <clears throat> now, Mark Rayburn, he says, I noticed something a bit strange during this year's UK Championship, which also manifested itself at the current Masters as well. All of Ronnie's matches were broadcast in the afternoon slot. It occurred to me that the majority of snooker fans are probably people who work during the day and hence won't get to see Ronnie play live on TV unless he reaches the semi-final or final. Now, I understand it's the BBC dictating the schedule to shoot to suit their dedicated afternoon slot. That involves a full production and they want the biggest name in the sport, i.e. Ronnie, in that slot. But my question to you is, do you think that's fair on the average fan? Do you know if World Snooker or Eurosport have any say in the scheduling of matches for the Triple Crown events or are they simply beholden to whatever the BBC decide? Well, Mark, on that latter point, uh, Eurosport are certainly beholden <laughs> because the BBC, the host broadcaster, so in terms of the scheduling of matches, they work with World Snooker. Now, World Snooker technically could could say, no, we're not having that, but they never do to the BBC. I mean, th- those two organisations are about as close as you can get. Um, it's one of the closest broadcaster sports body relationships that there is in any sport. Um, and maybe that was reflected what I was saying about that piece about, uh, you know, snooker in the uk it kind of there was no there was no counterpoint put interestingly but um yeah so the the eurosport don't have a say well snooker do but they tend to give the bbc what they want the bbc are paying a lot of money uh millions of pounds to show snooker so it's right that they get what they want but you're right ronnie plays in the afternoon um for them because their main program is in the afternoon had he got to the masters final the only evening session he would have played would have been (laughs) the last session of the final and you say, is it fair for the average fan? Is it fair for the other players? Because playing in the afternoon, I think, is an advantage because you're, it's, it means your whole day isn't about the match. You have the evening off, in effect. You're not going to have a late finish, midnight finish. I mean, Barry Hawkins, obviously, you know, he's half 11 finished to his semi-final, wasn't necessarily going to be fresh the next day for the final. Um, but, you know, <laughs> the reason for it is, is he is as popular as he is and he's achieved as much as he is, so he's kind of the star name. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate for people who want to watch him in the evening. It's interesting last year, if you remember last year's Masters, the BBC was showing educational programmes. So actually the big matches last year were in the evening and they were put on BBC Four. Um, and I think he played John Higgins in the quarterfinal last year. That was live in the evening. But that was an anomaly. In normal times, the big names are put on, the best matches are put on in the afternoon. So we saw John Higgins, Zhao Jing Tong. We saw Judd Trump's first round match against Mark Allen. You know, they were afternoon matches, and the, clearly there is a big part of the audience that are not going to see those. Um, th- I guess there is a counter-argument that actually at night, people maybe go out, or they have other things to watch or whatever to do. So maybe, you know, playing at night isn't necessarily uh, an advantage for the fans. But clearly, I mean, it's just a fact. There's going to be people at work who will not see these matches. But as I say, the BBC, I don't, I don't begrudge them. Um, they put the money in, so... I think it's right that they have a say over the schedule, and I think it'd be nice 
without getting too into it if if other broadcasters were given more of a kind of say as well when when they're the host broadcaster now then uh, our friend james cook in america writes greetings and happy new year to you i had an awful start to 2022 my son snapped his tibia bone skiing and my daughter got covid both on january the 3rd i did the ethical thing and drove her the the 1800 miles back to new york from colorado rather than flying on the journey two things happened Firstly, I caught up with the all various snooker podcasts, uh, with the various snooker podcasts, and I have to say the three-hour Christmas special with you, Nick and Phil, kept me awake through most of Nebraska, so thank you. There we are. We've, if we've achieved nothing else in the, all these years, we've kept someone awake in Nebraska. And second, not surprisingly, I contacted COVID for my daughter on the way, which coincided with the start of the Masters. I now have nothing to do but quarantine, every cloud and all that. Which brings me to my question, which is a pretty niche one. Which is just what we like, of course. In the first match, Yan Bingtao versus Mark Williams, Yan, I think, attempted a double early in the first frame. You were on commentary and described the attempt as a cross double. My question is, why is it called a cross double? It is still effectively a double, only with the white hitting the object ball at a more acute angle than a regular double. The object ball still goes across the table as it would with a normal double. There's no difference other than the white travels further as it's a thinner contact. So why is it called a cross double? Anyways, ever keep up the great work, please. I hope you find a way to keep the podcast going for as long as possible. Finally, if you do do have time to read my email out, I wonder if you could wish my wife a happy big 50th birthday on January the 16th, same day as Cliff Thorburn. Her name is Kristen. Given that I haven't got her anything yet due to my COVID infection, it will be a big help towards making her day feel special if you can give her a mention. Well, obviously we are a couple of days late, but happy birthday, Kristen. And uh, great that you share your birthday with Cliff as well, one of the legends of the game. I hope uh, all uh, all was well for the big day, and uh, it, it's great that your husband as well is giving out your age uh, on a podcast. That's always that's, I always find that that works well in a marriage. Um, the cross double. Well, these are just these are just terminology that sort of cropped up over the years. It, it's a particular type of double. You're sort of hitting the object ball from side on, and it's going across the table. Um, so it's just a way of distinguishing it from when you're right, right sort of um, uh, right sort of straight in front of the. the the double from, from when the cue ball will be on the left-hand side of the table and the, for example, the object ball's on the right-hand side cushion, you're more sort of square onto it. So it's just a term, really, to describe that particular shot which you've described yourself. Um, yes, that's it, really. Uh, yeah, it's still a double, you're quite right, but it's just, uh, I suppose, there's different categories of double. Um, yeah, so hopefully that answers that. Paul Prescott, now then. I've got to get the right amount of pleases here, so I'm going to make sure I concentrate... Please, 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 ask Eurosport if they can do anything to avoid using the BBC Snooker score graphics at the World Championship. We've had to put up with them for the UK and the Masters, despite the multitude of online complaints about them. To summarise the problem, they're bright yellow. They go across the whole width of the screen. They encroach on the black cushion. They should be lower on the screen. And they're on the display for every camera view, not just the main table camera. The Masters is a great tournament so far, and I realise my complaint is incredibly trivial in the grand scheme of things. But those BBC graphics are beyond annoying. They're incredibly distracting. I hope Eurosport can get a pure feed without graphics so they can use their own for the world champs. Well, <coughs> Paul, it, it, you touch on an issue here. Because people in TV love to use terminology that obviously not everyone necessarily understands. What Eurosport and all the broadcasters that aren't the BBC get, it, it's the world feed, they call it. So... That's effectively, it's it's what the BBC 
are showing in terms of the matches. Now, obviously, between frames or whatever, the BBC have their studio and they do their own stuff. But the match coverage, that is the same wherever you are in the world, and it's provided by the BBC for the world feed. So the graphics are kind of non-negotiable. You get them with everything else, the match coverage. Um, I have to say, I, I don't really, I, I can't really get excited about this. I remember growing up watching snooker, and they would only put the score graphic up every few minutes, you know, every two or three minutes. So you could tune in, and, and you'd have to wait to see even what the score was. I'd rather have a permanent graphic. It's not to everyone's taste, clearly, from what you're saying. One thing I thought that was overdone slightly was all the sort of other stuff that was put up, the pot success and all that stuff. That's interesting in its way, but it seemed to be incessant, actually, all that stuff. And I think, you know, obviously there's certain sports like cricket that put a lot of sort of stats up and whatever, but don't need it all the time, really. But uh, in terms of the score graphic, honestly, I I, I couldn't really, well, care less. <laughs> it's basically... It's not a major issue for me. Clearly, it is for some people, um, but hopefully, it didn't it didn't interrupt your enjoyment too much. Russ Wellham he said, "I'll start with my praise for the podcast. Your humour and relatability, along with your experience and knowledge, the enjoyable and unpredictable content, and the sense of community felt as an avid and loyal listener, we must all be a certain type of person, are the perfect cocktail for an imperfectly beautiful podcast." But what about that for an intro? If I'd have read that properly, Russ, you would have been the first email I'd have read out. But anyway, thank you for that. He said, I discovered it during the pandemic, which meant I had episodes to catch up on. And it's provided me relief from times that would have otherwise been much darker. So thanks for being there. I'd like to ask for any advice on ways to improve as a casual player of the game. A friend and I play for three hours every week at a pretty low standard that doesn't seem to improve with time, though we enjoy it very much. Any advice on things we could do to improve without needing too much commitment? How much might a coaching session help and how to go about that? I'd love to hear a coach join you on the podcast to talk about their experiences and maybe share some hints and tips. Well, this is an interesting point. I suspect one one of the things um, in terms of improving, I think what you need is to actually have the basics right. So you need to have you know a good stance, a good technique. And sometimes people don't realise actually the very small improvements you can make to actually get a better technique. And that is something that coaching would help with. Now, I'm not here to advertise anybody, but there's two players I know who recently have started coaching. Joe Perry and Michael Holt. Okay, two very well-known players have been on the tour, you know, between them, you know, well, Joe 30 years, Michael, I think, 25 years. And those two, apparently, you know, Joe's only just set his up, but they've they both had a lot of bookings, a lot of interest, because there's a lot of people actually do want to take that next step from, okay, I can make... 20, 30 breaks, I want to start making 50 breaks, you know. It's not, not, not everyone's trying to become world champion, but they're trying to improve. I think coaching could definitely help. The WPBSA have a, a list of coaches, uh, in your, in whatever area you live in, there'll be someone relatively nearby. Um, and in terms of people like Joe and Michael, I don't know how much they, they charge, but you can contact them and ask them. I think it's definitely got to help if you get someone like Joe Perry in your corner, who can just point out, as I say, it's not, you're not going to become a world beater overnight, but, just small things, you know, how you're holding the cue, you know, your, your, your general stance, your general technique, all of that stuff, where you're sighting the ball, all of this stuff can definitely help. It's the small things that, you know, I think will help you go to the next level. So, you know, it would be nice to get a coach on at some point, definitely. We did have uh, Wayne Griffiths on from uh, Snooker SQ, the new thing that he set up, Terry's son. He was on a few months ago uh, on, on one of the podcasts. And, uh, yeah, you know, coaching is, is definitely something that I think if you're looking to improve, it's got to be a road that, you know, you, you might consider going down. 
Brendan Hegarty writes, As a recent convert to snooker, I don't know the full history, but it seems when I watch old videos on YouTube, the pockets are a bit bigger than they are now. This is particularly noticeable when you see players cut balls in the middle pocket at tight angles that players today would not even attempt. Have the pocket sizes ever been reduced, or am I imagining things? Uh, you're not imagining things, Brendan. They they were reduced, I can know the year, it was 1991. They were, they were reduced, and the reason I know that is because they didn't tell the players. So the players turned up, I'm pretty sure it was in Stoke, one of these sort of places, the International in Stoke or something, and, uh, well, let's say it was Stoke. Okay, they turned up, and I think Phil Yates tells us, told me the story that Terry Griffiths was went on the practice table and, you know, was just sort of, playing a few simple shots and was finding the balls were rattling the jaws and he, he was thinking what's happening here um, and it transpired that they'd, redu <laughs> they'd reduced the size of the pockets the template had changed um, and it made a difference and obviously people had to get used to it um, now the table conditions in general have improved so actually they are more conducive to scoring even though the pockets have got smaller the cloths are thinner um, and you know it we saw at the Masters, I mean, the conditions there were beautiful. I didn't hear any complaints about the table. Um, so the cloths are thinner, the balls are lighter than they used to be, so they open up more easily, um, and therefore, you know, breaks are, are easy to come by. The players are better as well, that also helps. Um, what you see early on in tournaments is um, the balls often slide in the pocket. So the first couple of days in a tournament, balls are going that, that maybe wouldn't on days three or four. Um, so they can sometimes look bigger than they are, and some people will tell you they're massive. They're not. You know, they just, they just aren't. And it's a fact. Alan McManus was on, I think he was on Talking Snooker podcast, and he was asked this directly, and he answered directly. They're, they're smaller than they used to be. Uh, there's, a, there's a shot Alex Higgins plays in that clearance against Jimmy White. Um, early on, a red to the middle. You couldn't play that now. You could, couldn't play that now on, the, on those middle pockets. You're right, the middles are vicious. Um, I guess it's a question of, you know, should the pockets be closed even more because the stand is so high? But do we really want to see people... You know, people struggling to, to sort of pop balls. I'm not so sure. I think it's about right, personally. Um, so they've got slightly smaller. Not 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 massively smaller, but they've got slightly smaller. But equally, the tables are more conducive to scoring. So in some ways, conditions have actually got better at the same time. Uh, John Evans writes, I wondered if you had any thoughts on the level of mass compliance in the audiences at the recent Grand Prix and Masters. After being told to wear masks via email and by MC Rob Walker... I'd estimate that for the final of the Grand Prix, which I attended, approximately 40% of the crowd weren't wearing one. With that in mind, and with recent surge in COVID-19 cases, it does seem bloody cheeky of a good percentage of the audience to outright refuse to wear a piece of fabric on their face to protect vulnerable people, both in the crowd and who they may come into contact with after the event. I cannot believe that 40% plus are exempt from mask wearing. Do you think World Snooker and venue staff could do more to enforce mask wearing? Well, interesting point. I mean, imagine like this question two years ago, it just wouldn't even have been a thing, would it? But obviously things have changed with the pandemic. Uh, there's two things here. One is, I mean, personally, I always wear a mask on public transport, in a shop, anywhere where I'm out, because I think it's a good thing to do and it shows respect for other people. Equally, I'm not a great fan of sort of authoritarianism and going around forcing people and asking to see paperwork which says whether they're exempt or not. I think if you go out to a tournament and are prepared to sit amongst people for three or four hours at a time, that is a choice that you make and you have to kind of accept the risks of that. Um, and it was great. Personally, I think it was great to see so many people turn up last week at Alexandra Palace. Um, I'm not a great fan of going around with a stick telling people they've got to do this or they've got to do that. At the same time, I do think people should show respect to each other. Um, 
but you know, it, it would be hard to enforce. I mean, for example, if someone wears a mask at the side of a frame, two balls in, takes it off. What are you going to do? Stop play? <laughs> Go over to them, tell them to put it on? It's just, it's kind of unworkable. They they are encouraged and told it's one of the rules, but you know. Once people have sort of taken the step to actually go to the event, would they actually, you know, want to sit there all afternoon with the mask on? It's, it's kind of up to them in the end. Um, but yeah, so hopefully that answers that. Uh, Elliot Jordan. Firstly, I would like to thank you for this very entertaining and illuminating podcast and also for being part of the peerless snooker team at Eurosport. If there's a choice of channel to watch an event, I always watch on 410. That's the, uh, the channel on, on Sky that Eurosport is on. By the way, the shootout will be on 411 because we're on <laughs> we're on Eurosport 2. So just to let you know, Elliot, that you need to uh, just go one down the dial for that. Elliot writes, I may be biased here as Eurosport went above and beyond when they managed to get a video message for my now late father, Jim, for his last birthday with us from Ronnie O'Sullivan. Not too melodramatic or hyperbolic to say that it made his last few months pass a great deal more happily for him. My dad was a massive Ronnie fan. Growing up, it was all about the hurricane for him. Jimmy White for me, and I didn't think he would ever be as mad about a sportsman until Ronnie came along. I used to watch tournaments with him on the TV when I was at home during the 80s, but I lost a bit of interest in the 2000s as life got in the way. Randomly, myself and my dad and my future son-in-law went to play snooker one night about five years ago, and I was hooked again. Every year since then, we went to the Scottish Open, and in 2019, we made it to the Crucible, which was an almost quasi-religious experience for the three of us. Enough about me, the Scottish Open... Due to the nanny state infiltrating Glasgow life who operate the Emirates Arena, we had the farce of it being held in Wales last year. As you're in the loop, do you know if there's any danger of it not being held in Scotland this year? For us Scottish snooker fans, it's the only event up here. We're missing our fix of easy, accessible live snooker. Once again, thank you for what you give to snooker and hopefully see you in Scotland, and that's in caps for the Open later this year. Well, Elliot, thanks for your email. I think, um, I'm sure they'll want it in Scotland again. I mean, I, I, I haven't heard specifically but that was a last minute thing that that you write about what happened there world snooker only found out the day before the box office was due to open so obviously they didn't have much time to get an alternate venue i'm sure it will be i mean listen i, I can't promise anything because it's not up to me but i'm sure it'll be in scotland this year i don't think that will happen again um lovely words about uh your dad there and great to hear that ronnie uh, sent that video and you're supposed to send that video um it's one of the the reasons that snooker has thrived, and, and certainly players, and Ronnie is actually a perfect example of this, is it's father to son, and we're talking from a, a male perspective here, but fathers passing it on to sons. You look at Steve Davis, you know he was brought into snooker by his dad, Bill, and indeed carried on playing long after, really, he was at his best, because his dad, Bill, loved watching him play, and when his dad passed away, Steve retired. Um, so nice to hear that that link is sort of continuing there through you and uh, good to see you're back enjoying snooker again. Matt Pickles. This is a bit out of left field from Matt, which is what we like. He said, I was one, just wondering what your thoughts were on Power Snooker, which was a tournament hell for a couple of years with some different rules. It was heavily promoted and quite fun to watch, but then it just disappeared. Would you like to see a comeback? I personally preferred Matt, uh, Power Snooker over the shootout. Yes, this was... Uh, how long ago was this now? Probably about 10 years ago. It was um, every now and again, and we had it with six reds um, as well. People come along with new ideas to jazz up the game and you know, blah, blah, blah. I remember I went to the launch of it in London. Ronnie was paid a fortune to promote it. And Barry Hearn sort of sanctioned it, but it was a little bit through gritted teeth, I think. ITV showed a couple of years of it. It lost a fortune. I know that much. The promoters lost a fortune. 
Uh, it wasn't my cup of tea. It was very hard to follow. And people talk about the shouting out <laughs> at the masses last week. I mean, the, some of the stuff shouted out was disgraceful, actually, at Power Snooker, um, at the referees and, and other people, the players. Um, it was hard to follow to have that power ball where the points went up by sort of 200 points out of nowhere. But here's the reason it was never going to take off. It's very simple. You couldn't play it. So even if you really enjoyed watching it, if you went to the snooker club the next day, you couldn't play power snooker. It was just impossible. There was no, no facility to do that. Um, so I don't. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I prefer the shootout personally. Um, I know I'm biased because I'm working on it, but I, I but, but I'd also just prefer traditional snooker over all of it. Really, didn't it? Didn't really do anything for the sport um, other than cost people money. <laughs> Uh, now, moving on, Sam Bird, this is not Sam Baird, the snooker player, this is Sam Bird. He said, what happened to the planned event in Saudi Arabia? I remember hearing about this a few years ago with prize money to match the worlds. Obviously, COVID put a stop to overseas comps, but I've not heard anything at all about this or plans for it to debut after COVID. Has it been scrapped? And secondly, what's your favourite snooker book? I love a good sports autobiography. I love Jimmy's autobiography and Ronnie's second book, Running, was also a great read. Hendry's was a chore, though, sadly. Any recommendations? Well, Sam, on the uh, on Saudi, we haven't heard any news on that. Um, I think Jason Ferguson, I think Phil Haig uh, did ask him about it in a recent piece on Metro Online and sort of said, oh, it's still in the background, but it's not... Well, be interesting to see, won't it, next season, the calendar, is it on there? I suspect it won't be. And also, I would say this, if, if we never heard anything about it again, it would not surprise me, actually. Um, there was something about it which... At the time, I felt was almost too good to be true. That's not to say that's not to say it wasn't going to happen or it wasn't a real thing, but it seems so extraordinary that there would be a ten-year deal for a tournament with a half million pound first prize in a, in a country that's never had any snooker before. Um, yeah, uh, let's see. Let's see on that. Favorite snooker book. Um, I t- I'm not a huge fan of autobiographies just because they are by their nature self-serving. They have to be. They have to be because. You know, it's it's one person telling their life story. I actually liked Hendry's, though, having said that. I thought it was really interesting, Stephen Hendry's book, uh, Me and the Table. Um, I would say my favourite, I would say, uh, Pocket Money by Gordon Byrne, which was an account of the 85-86 season. And uh, a similar book from a few years earlier called The Cruel Game by Gene Rafferty, which was the 81-82 season. And the interesting thing about that book, um, and hopefully this is not offensive because I'm, it's well-meant, it was written by a woman. It was a female look at snooker, which you don't always get. You don't normally get. Most of the sort of journalism and writing about snooker is from men. But actually, you know, she had a sort of empathetic view of Alex Higgins, for example, which was quite rare, actually. It wasn't sort of judgmental about him. Obviously, he won the World Championship. There's a lot of Barry Hearn in that, a lot of Matchroom in that, and Steve and Terry and Tony Meehan and these people. So I would recommend those two books. You can get them, I'm sure, online. Pocket Money by Gordon Byrne and The Cool Game by Gene Rafferty. Uh, Clive's book, Clive Everton's book, uh, Black Farce and Cue Ball Wizards is, is an extraordinary sort of history of, of snooker and all its various sort of shenanigans over the years, um, alongside Clive's own career. Um, it's not a sport over, overly served by books, is it? Um, you know, there haven't been as many as you'd expect in a lot of other sports. Uh, but, um, yeah, the, I would say th- those three probably, Pocket Money, The Cruel Game and Black Farce and Cue Ball Wizards. Now, don't worry, we're nearly finished. We're nearly finished. Uh, Matthew McConnell, I was just wondering if it's a bit more irritating for you and your Eurosport colleagues to commentate on tournaments in which you guys have to use the BBC feed, replay stats, 
lines for escapes from Stukas, etc., are all decided based on what the BBC commentators are talking about. And so sometimes on Eurosport, they can seem a little random or out of place. I understand this would be would only be a minor inconvenience, but was just curious if you found it annoying having to discern what the point being made is when they constantly show a player's tip or repeatedly show a missed pot from the match, for example. Well, Matthew, this is a very interesting point um, because I think most viewers wouldn't think about this. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, the world feed, OK? So that, what is being sent out to all the countries that show snooker, that is being directed to what the commentators on site are saying. So in the case of this, the BBC... So if John Virgo mentions Mark Williams' tip and they put the camera on it, whatever we're saying, obviously we have to change to say, oh, when you know, Mark Dominic might say something about the tip, or just putting the camera on Ronnie Wood, or when they put the camera on Alan Hunter, or whatever it is, you have to react in commentary to what's on the screen. Um, now, if you're commentating yourself, of course, you can drive that. Uh, but even at Eurosport, we, you know, we, we might, if we're the host broadcaster, OK, I can sort of guide the director towards something... But Rolf Kalb in Germany, or Rudy Bounds doing Dutch Eurosport, they're having to react to what I'm saying. So it's, it's actually still a problem for the other Eurosport commentators. Um, it's not annoying. It's something have been used to for years. You ha- it's part of the skill, actually, of, of being a lead commentator. You have to be prepared to change what you're saying, react to what's on the screen. At all times, you've got to remember what you're looking at is what the viewer's looking at. So you have to. you can't be talking about, oh, well, you know, he's got to come off two cushions off this blue. If you can't see the table, you're looking at, you know... Ed Miliband in the crowd or somebody uh, to, to to pull to pull a name out of the fire. So yeah, it, it's not annoying. It's just it's just a fact of being you know not the host broadcaster really. Um, uh, but interesting uh, interesting point certainly. Uh, Ian Lewis just watching Selby and Hawkins at the Masters. Hawkins has just fluked a long red after a long pot attempt. It got me thinking. Does that count towards pot success? The overall result is the intended ball went in a pocket, not just not the intended pocket. Well, Ian. My understanding is it doesn't count as a pot. Now, I'm, I'll have to check this when I'm next see a fluke. But because the, the, what's complicated about it is you can fluke you can fluke a ball into the intended pocket because you can take a red on, say, to the top right, it goes across the table, back again, and drops in. So you have still potted it, just not in the intended way. It's a judgment call for the guys in the truck. It's a bit of a mysterious world that, that, that they sit in that truck outside doing all this stuff. We assume it's all correct. Um, but I'll try and, I'll, well, I'll, I'll definitely monitor that and, and see see if I'm right. But I'm pretty sure flukes are not counted as pots. Um, well, we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, Aaron Power, congratulations for getting the writing spot with Eurosport Snooker, as you mentioned in the Christmas special of doing more writing work. In addition to this new gig, I would love to put the idea to you about creating a mailing list where you could send out a weekly email to subscribers about any snooker-related ramblings or thoughts you might have. This may stimulate more email responses that you could discuss on the podcast also. Um, thank you, Aaron. Uh, yes, the, col- uh, the column uh, I'm now doing every week uh, for Eurosport um, on their website, so Eurosport.com. Uh, Eurosport.com. Uh, this week I write about uh, Neil Robertson and the Masters. Um, the- I mean, it's not a bad idea, this mailing list. The only thing that concerns me is it sounds like work. <laughs> it sounds like work, which is, uh, you know, um, certainly when in, in the middle of the season when you're working at tournaments, I, I, I know for a fact after a couple of weeks of doing it, I'll get, I'll get sick of it <laughs> because I'm essentially lazy. So um, it's, not, it's a good idea, but I, I'm not, not planning to do that as of, as of the moment. Um, <clears throat> now then, Simon Thompson... 
Sorry to hear you only received three emails before the last podcast. A mixture of pity and a genuine desire to have this topic aired has therefore prompted me to write. I find it frustrating there appears to be far less appreciation of really high quality tactical safety orientated encounters these days. Often games that are over quickly with very high scoring single visit century breaks are described as snooker from the gods. But I think that a tactical battle between two highly skilled players such as Mark Selby, Higgins etc is far more enthralling. Single-visit snooker frames are akin to boxers taking it in turns to punch each other, whereas a quality safety encounter is like a full fight with all the rounds completed. As the quality of break building has undoubtedly improved year on year, particularly since Hendry, there now seems to be a preoccupation amongst some media commentators that this is the measure of the quality of a match. Am I alone in thinking I prefer to watch an evenly matched tactical encounter rather than a one-hour breakfast? This annoys me particularly when highlights of the games are shown. Tactical safety exchanges are simply edited out and instead we have to watch hours and hours of balls being slammed into pockets. The game is called snooker for a reason. To further throw the cat amongst the pigeons, I would like to offer the analogy that four-minute single... that four-minute single break frame... Ah, that a four-minute single break frame is like a short crash chart record as opposed to a decent tactical frame being like a sumptuous piece of classical music that ebbs, flows and delights. Just because a frame lasts an hour does not mean it's of poor quality. No doubt I will get shot down in flames for suggesting such a thing, but hey-ho, at least you've had something to read out. By the way, your podcast is head and shoulders above the others, and your loyal listenership simply won't allow you to stop doing it. Well, thank you very much, Simon. We'll see about that. But, uh, yes, I mean, I, listen, I, I definitely appreciate tactical play. I think a lot of snooker fans do... It's less easy on the eye, I suppose, than long reds flying in. And it's interesting when Will Snooker did their um, they did their shots of the year last year, shots of the season. I think I think it was an A to Z, so they were doing twenty six shots. They were pretty much all pots. I'm not sure there were any. I may be wrong on this, uh, but I'm pretty sure there were no safety shots played at all. And yeah, it's all skill. I mean, I'm always I'm always amazed personally, you know, when you see that shot where the player snookered and they play the two cushion flick off the red back to bulk. I mean, that is such a skillful shot. To play, and you know that's just one example. It is part of the game. It's an important part of the game. You're right. It's sort of not as in vogue as breaks because it's not as eye catching, but it's all part of the rich tapestry. The rich tapestry of snooker. There was a final back in 2003, uh, the European Open in Torquay. It wasn't televised um, because the game was being so badly run. Um, <coughs> I think it's supposed to be on the continent of, of, of Europe, and they couldn't get a venue. Ended up in a hotel in Torquay. I mean, you can just imagine the jokes that <laughs> that were made uh, there, Fawlty Towers and all the rest of it. But anyway, uh, it was a great final between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Hendry. Fantastic match. But in the crowd, Ray Reardon and Tony Knowles were, were, were there. I think they were there to present the trophy. And they were quoted afterwards the next day in the local paper as saying, yeah, you know, the, OK, all these breaks, but, you know, the, where was all the craft? Where was all the... That's what Tony Knowles said. Where was all the craft? Where was all the tactical play? So you're not alone in this. A lot of people... Uh, enjoy seeing that stuff as well, but um, the problem with highlights is, you know, you've only normally got an hour, to, you know, to get everything in. So you're going to go for, I guess, the more sort of faster moving stuff. Um, but anyway, thanks for that. I, w- I would say this though, in terms of, you know, you, what you call a short crass chart record. I mean, some of the the great sort of musical achievements of our time have been short and sweet. You know, you think of some of the the early Beatles singles, for example. So um, anyway, that's. Uh, Maybe that's a, a, a discussion for a music podcast. One more, po- one more uh, email, and then we'll we'll stop. Paul Tibble, 
Keep up the good pod. It's an enjoyable listen, and I find your opinions likeable. <laughs> there we are. I'll put that on the uh, whatever promotional material. My opinions are likeable. Anyway, thank you, Paul. He said, I'll write this email on Tuesday afternoon. I've just watched the an- annihilation job Ronnie's done on Jack. Jack Lazowski. Having watched Ronnie's post-match interview with the BBC, sadly I didn't have access to Eurosport coverage I was watching at work. He came over incredibly positive and head-sorted. He made an interesting comment about unlearning what he learnt to try and change his game. With his prowess on the table and attitude in a very good place, do you feel number seven, well, title of number seven, of course, is on the cards this year? In addition, as you better access to the players than I do, could you please grab Jack Lazowski by the ear and tell him to concentrate? The small lack of attention at crucial times is all that's holding him back, in my opinion. And he really could be a very successful snooker player, winning many titles. He's a very nice player to watch play snooker, and it must frustrate him more than anyone else. Yes, I thought Ronnie spoke very well after that win. Um, it's good to see him talking himself up, actually. Um, but the problem is, as we know with him, that could all change You know, within a week or two. He could be back to running himself down again. You say he's title number seven on the cards. I wouldn't say it's on the cards, no, because you know it's so hard to win that tournament. But it wasn't. But number six wasn't on the cards really. He wasn't playing particularly well. Haven't shown much in the way of form, I suppose, going into that tournament. I know there'd been a you know a bit of a gap because of the pandemic anyway. But uh, there was no great sign in twenty twenty he was going to win that tournament. Um, I think the issue for him. I know he won the World Grand Prix, um, but the issue for him it is actually now beating. The other real top players, the Robertsons, the Trumps, the Selbys, John Higgins always seems to beat him now. So in the World Championship, he'd do well to avoid all of them. Um, but listen, as he said himself, after he beat Jack, uh, talking about Neil Robertson, let him worry about me is what he said. You know, all these achievements, you know, he, he's not an easy draw still, Ronnie O'Sullivan by any means. So yeah, listen, if he won it, I wouldn't be surprised. And if he didn't win it, I wouldn't be surprised. And that's kind of been the same most years at the Crucible. In terms of Jack, well, a lot of people have made the same point. He's a wonderful player, delightful player. Um, but, you know, there's just something slightly missing in terms of the next step, whether it's concentration, as you as you put it, shot selection, whatever it is, I guess, you know, he'll be looking to uh, to find it because, yeah, it'd be wonderful to see him winning tournaments. I think everyone agrees with that. So, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see whether that... Uh, whether that happens this season, there's still a lot of snooker to be played. Of course, the shootout uh, is this week, and then we've got German Masters next week, and um, there's basically pretty much something every month now. It's three months every week now. There's three months to the World Championship, so it's a very busy time. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the uh, to the run into the Crucible. I want to thank Angela Beattie as well, who sent a very nice email about the podcast. Thank you to everyone who emailed in. You know, it was a little bit um, desperate last week, basically, <laughs> sounding the alarm. But people answered, and that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, it's like shining the, the, the bat symbol in the air. Snooker fans have always got plenty to say. And uh, I think I've been talking for long enough now, uh, so I will stop. Uh, just to say, of course, we are, as you know, proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. And as ever, you can email us. At uh, where can you email us? Snooker, <laughs> snooker scene podcast at mail.com. That's snooker scene podcast at mail.com. Now then, uh, uh, Judd Trump, will you be emailing in? Come on, baby! Yeah! I'll take that as a yes. Uh, that'll do for this week. Um, thanks for listening. And uh, as Judd Trump didn't say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.